Okay, we are in the book of Nehemiah, and we are in chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the examples you give to us uh, in Nehemiah of a, a godly man in a position of leadership and how he trusts you and how he knows your word, and, and the result we see is, is a good example of leadership. And we just pray that we can uh, learn from that and, and learn from uh, your word just the things we need to know for us to keep growing as believers. We pray that you'll open your word up to us this morning and bless our time together in your son's name. Amen. Okay, we, will, we are in Nehemiah chapter 6, and to get our context, we'll start reading in verse 1 and read through verse 19. So we'll read the whole chapter. We did about half the chapter last time we met, so we might even finish it today. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gate, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent a servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, therefore you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be king according to these reports. And have been appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judea. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delia, son of Mehetabel, who was restricted to his house. He said, Let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors, because they're going to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man should I as, should, such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sandalit had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act, afraid and act in this way. And so they gave me a bad name in order in order to taunt me. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah, about according to these words of theirs, and also Nodiah, prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So the wall was completed on the twenty-fifth day of Yule in fifty-two days. And it came about when all of our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah 
sent many letters to, Dubai, to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehonahan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Okay, so last time we met was two weeks ago and we had started chapter 6. And we see that they had completed the wall. They'd filled up all the breaches, but they had not yet hung the doors in the gates. And uh, Sanballat and Tobiah uh, have been keeping up on the progress. And they knew that they did not have much opportunity left to stop the Jews from completing the wall and and the gates and, and making Jerusalem secure. Now, previously, they had uh, tried to stop work by threatening the workers and attacking the workers. Uh, That did not uh, work, so now they're trying to figure out different plots to remove Nehemiah from leadership. So they're trying to take away the leader, and and then the the workforce would fall apart. So the first plot uh, we saw in verses 2 through 4, they sent messengers to Nehemiah saying, Let's go meet in this, in this neutral territory and we'll negotiate a treaty or an agreement or something like that. Um, what they really wanted to do was get him out of Jerusalem where they could harm him. Now, maybe they were going to murder him, maybe they're going to kidnap him, something. It tells us they're going to harm him, but they were going to remove him from leadership. And uh, Nehemiah recognized this as a, a plot and he uh, refused to go. It says they sent messengers total four times with the same message. They were getting kind of desperate. They had to get Nehemiah out of Jerusalem. Um, And Nehemiah turned them down all four times. And then we have the second plot, starting in verse 5. We have the messenger came for a fifth time, and this time he had an open letter. That means it wasn't sealed for Nehemiah's private letter. instructions it was open it could have been posted on a door it could have been read aloud anybody could look at it and basically this letter uh, was accusing Nehemiah and the Jews of rebellion against King Artaxerxes the reason they were building a wall was so that they could fortify the city they could rebel and Nehemiah was going to have himself proclaimed to be king of the Jews and so that was the accusation made against him. Um, back when we were uh, looking in the book of Ezariah in chapter 4, the Jews had started rebuilding the wall some years earlier, and this exact ploy had been used, and it worked. They reported to King Artaxerxes, the Jews are building a wall, they're going to rebel. Artaxerxes uh, issued a stop work order, and they, they stopped the, the project. Um, This time, Nehemiah, though, says, there's nothing to it. You're just making all this stuff up. None of it has ever happened. So that was the second plot. And so today we're starting at verse 10, and this is actually the third plot to try to take, to destroy Nehemiah's leadership. And this one's a little more subtle than the first two. So let's look at verse 10. And when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, 
who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. So this plot basically is trying to get Nehemiah to run away and hide, and also to get him to go into the temple, which was a violation of the law, and that would uh, ruin his reputation. So that's what they were trying to get here. Um, the commentaries say they really don't know who Shemaiah was. When you look at his name, you look at the name of Deliah, his father, uh, they're fairly common names, and they're often names among those who are priests. So the commentaries kind of uh, say he's probably a priest. <coughs> so here he essentially speaks a prophecy to Nehemiah. And when we look down below in verse 12, it says, he uttered his prophecy against me. So this is a prophecy that's coming through uh, Shemaiah. It does say he's confined <coughs> at home. And again, <coughs> excuse me, and again, uh, you know, we're not told why. You know, it almost sounds like he's under house arrest or something, but that doesn't make sense either. Um, what uh, the commentaries speculate is that he was acting out his prophetic message. That was something you see rather common among the, the prophets. They would do something physical to illustrate the prophecy that they were given. And in this case, he's telling... Nehemiah, that we should go and confine ourselves in the temple where it's safe. And so he was acting that out by confining himself in his house. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 21. <clears throat> we'll look at an example of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Acts chapter 21. Someone like to read verses 10 and 11 for us. Okay, so he could have just delivered the message, but instead he binds his own hands, binds his feet, you know, illustrates the message. That makes it a lot more powerful, more visual, uh, it comes across stronger. Um, we have a, a interesting one in 1 Kings chapter 22. Let's turn back there. First Kings chapter 22. Someone like to read verse 11 for us. And Zedekiah, the son of Jannah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. Okay, so he made, he went to some uh, work here to make iron horns. Iron was not easy to work with. This was during so-called Bronze Age. Um, so he made iron horns, and he went around with his horns, you know, pretending to be a bull and goring people, and that's, that was his message. You're going to do this to the Arameans. So this business of a prophet acting out his, uh, 
his prophecy is not at all unusual. And so that is possibly why he was confined to his home. Um, the commentaries also say that uh, his message was probably uh, more of in a poetic form. Most of the versions, uh, when you read it, it's written as prose. Uh, but when you read prophecies, you know, they're often, they look like you're reading through, a, through poetry. And they're saying this actually is how it should be. Uh, you know, the first line, let us meet together in the house of God. And then within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple. And then for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you at night. So each one of those would be a separate line of this prophecy. So the message was, men are coming to kill you at night. You must go into the temple. You must shut the doors for safety. Protect yourself from this plot. Nehemiah, as we have seen before, knows God's word, and he should have instantly recognized a problem with this prophecy. This meant that he would enter the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the front part of the temple, the holy place. Only priests were allowed into the holy place. So the prophet was telling him to do something that was a violation of the law. Let's go back and look at Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18, someone would like to read verse 7 for us. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. Okay. Priests alone. Even the Levites were not allowed in. So it was priests alone. And let's look at an example of this in Second Chronicles chapter 26. We'll see a violation. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Would someone like to read verses 18 and 19 for us? And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests of the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn the incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he put the censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest and the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Okay. Then it goes on to say they hurried him out of the altar because, again, with leprosy, he was unclean. So he, Uzziah actually started out as a fairly decent king, but he took it upon himself to offer incense himself rather than having the priest do it. He went into the holy place. God judged him with leprosy. And he had leprosy for the rest of his life. Um, I do want to look at one other uh, verse. If you're going to flee to the temple for safety, here's how you're supposed to do it. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 1.
Adonijah was one of the sons of David who wanted to be king, but David appointed Solomon king. So now Adonijah was suspect of uh, being a uh, competition with King Solomon. So 1 Kings chapter 1, someone would like to read verses 50 and 51. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Okay, so he fled to the altar. The bronze altar was outside the temple. So he did not violate the law by going into the temple, but he went, went to the bronze altar and was hanging on to the bronze altar and uh, for defense or, you know, requesting God's protection because he feared that Solomon was going to kill him as, because he was competition for the throne. Uh, Solomon did let him live, but this was outside the temple. So Nehemiah has this pro- prophecy that tells him to do something that's in violation of the law. So what kind of a prophet do we have here? False. He's a false prophet. If someone prophesies and tells you something that violates or contradicts the word of God, he's not from God. Are they supposed he, to die? I mean, they're supposed to be stoned under the law, stone. yes. So he was a false prophet. So Nehemiah knows this, and so he's, he basically smells a plot going on here. And so we see verse going back to Nehemiah chapter 6, looking at verse 11. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. So this rejection comes in two parts. And the first one is, should a man like me flee? He was the leader. He was the example to the people of working on the, on the wall. <clears throat> he stood firm against all these different attacks. He publicly called on God as his protection should he turn and flee now? You know, the, the leader had to stand up for his, you know, in front of his people as an example. <clears throat> and he had that courage. He had the trust in God to stand firm, uh, give his people leadership and the example they needed to continue on. <clears throat> let's look at a couple passages in, in Scripture that, that back this up. Uh, let's look at Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4, and would someone read verses 3 through 6? Okay, so this is Eliphaz telling Job, you know, you've been a strength and an example to others, and now you're having problems. Are you going to fall apart? You know, 
don't you trust God? You know, it's easy to tell other people to trust God. But being the example yourself of trusting God is important. And so that he's, he's criticizing Job for uh, not being that good example. Um, let's also turn to Psalm 11. <clears throat> Psalm of David. Psalm 11. And would someone like to read verses 1 and 2 for us? Okay. David's saying, I, I take my refuge in the Lord. How can you tell me to flee? There's a little bit of a contradiction there. If you really take refuge in the Lord, you're not going to just turn and run. So, so that's the first part of Nehemiah's response. You know, I'm a leader. I proclaim my faith in God. I'm an example to the people. I can't flee. And then secondly, he says, how can someone like himself go into the temple? He knew he was not a priest. He knew it was wrong. So the second part we've already talked about. A priest was not allowed in the temple. It was a violation of the law. So on the one hand, he was not going to violate the law. On the other hand, he wanted to be a good example, a good leader to his people. So he uh, flat out refused Shemaiah's uh, suggestion that he flee to the temple. So going on, let's look at verses 12 and 13. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. So Nehemiah looks at the situation and he figures out what's going on. Here he had a false prophet and he knew, you know, who's, who's behind the scene, you know. There's an old saying about follow the money. He'd been hired. Um, where did the money come from? It came from Tobiah and Sanballat. He was not, so Shemaiah was not sent by God as a prophet with a message, but he'd been hired uh, to deceive Nehemiah. And so they had hoped by this means to um, frighten Nehemiah into committing the sin of desecrating the temple, and then they would have a bona fide reason to discredit him. You know, the previous plot, they had come up with a lie that, that he was wanting to be king. And Nehemiah f- could flat out refuse that. Nehemiah was a man of integrity. You know, they would make these charges, they wouldn't stick. In this case, if they had tricked him into actually <coughs> violating the law, they would have a legitimate charge against him. A setup. A setup, yes, it was a setup. <clears throat> so... Um, he manages here to recognize this and avoid, uh, avoid this deception, avoid this stumbling. Um, one of the things here, when it lists his enemies, it lists Tobiah first before Sanballat. 
And we don't have that anywhere else. Everywhere else it's Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat's always listed first. In this case, uh, it's very likely because he played a leading role in this particular plot. And we'll see later, <coughs> excuse me, he is related to many of the priests through marriage. He's related, he, his wife is uh, for the priestly family. His daughter-in-law is from a priestly family. So he has a lot of contacts within the body of the priests. And so he would be able to go to the religious community in Jerusalem, find those who oppose Nehemiah, and get them to cooperate with him in this case to, to try to trip up Nehemiah. So he was listed first here. Okay, going on to verse 14. He says, Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs, and also Nodiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. So at the end of chapter 5, remember we had Nehemiah saying, you know, God, remember my deeds, my good works, and bless me for them. So here he's telling God, remember the evil deeds of my enemies, not for blessing, but for discipline and punishment. Um, we have something similar at the end of the book. Let's, let's turn to chapter 13 in Nehemiah. Someone like to read verses 28 and 29. One of the sons of Jodiah, the son of Elishim, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sandalit and the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant with the priesthood and of the Levites. Okay, so intermarriage was a problem. We saw that in Ezra. It props up again in the end of Nehemiah. So here, Eliashib is the high priest. His son had married the daughter of Sanballat, who was his chief opponent. And Sanballat was not a Jew. So a priest's son had married a non-Jew. The high priest's son had married a non-Jew. This was a violation of the law again here. And so again, we see in verse 29, Remember them, O God. They've defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So again, God, remember my enemies because they are doing what is wrong. Remember them for discipline and punishment and judgment. So we have Nehemiah here in asking God to remember this. He's presenting the issue to God. He's not taking judgment into his own hands. He's not taking vengeance into his own hands. He's turning it over to God. God, you take care of this. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. We will see where this idea comes up in in the law itself. Deuteronomy 32, I have a couple verses here to read. One is verse 35, and the other one is verse 41. So if someone would like to read those two verses, 35 and 41. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. It is due time to 
near and do mercies upon them. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, as I, as surely as I live, forever. Okay. 41. 41, please. Okay. And when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. Okay, so who does vengeance belong to? God. God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. So we see it in Deuteronomy, words from God's mouth there, that he will take vengeance on his enemies. <coughs> Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. <coughs> Someone like to read verse 19. Okay, so here we see a phrase that looks an awful lot like what we read in De Deuteronomy. I think that's exactly where it came from. Vengeance is my, you know, Paul is giving them the application of this Old Testament verse. Don't take your own vengeance. Um, I had read something about uh, forgiveness as believers. You know, we sh we're called upon to forgive our enemies. And a lot of people say, well, that's just based in love. And I'm thinking, no, it's not necessarily based in love. When I forgive someone, I'm saying, I'm not going to take vengeance. I'm not going to judge you because that belongs to God. God will take care of it. If the person um, deserves to be judged, deserves discipline and punishment, God will do it. I'm getting out of the way. It's not my job to do that. So a lot of times when we forgive people, part of it is knowing that God will take care of it. And it's not ours to avenge. So we have both those motivations. One is uh, to respond to them in love. The other one is knowing God will take care of it. Justice will be done. So we don't have to worry about it. Um... So we've got Tobiah and Sanballat mentioned here in his uh, imprecatory prayer. Uh, but he also mentions uh, Nodiah the prophetess. And again, this is one of those little details that nobody really knows who Nodiah is. Uh, about the only thing the commentary said was in the Old Testament, there's, I think, three prophetesses female prophets mentioned, and she's one of them. So they did have women who spoke were prophetesses. Um, in this case, she is lumped in with the false prophets and says the rest of the prophets were trying to frighten uh, Nehemiah. So you've got to, you know, it's not just um, Shemaiah. There's other prophets involved here. Um, And this is kind of, you know, the leadership of the Jews, a lot of it was in the priesthood and in the Levites and the prophets. And that's, they were the ones who were opposing Nehemiah. So you've got this new governor coming in and he's fighting the establishment here. You know, I think 
you know, in our last presidency uh, with Donald Trump, they always talked about the swamp. Well, there's nothing new about that. This is Nehemiah's swamp, in a sense. Um, so they had all tried to frighten him into fleeing to the temple. <clears throat> um, so we have these false prophets. And they, we have, over and over again, false prophets playing a role in the history of Israel. Now I want to look at a couple of examples of this. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. This is... Uh, a judgment on Samaria. So this is a northern kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9. Someone like to read verses 14 and 15. Okay, so it talks about God's judgment. And it includes the prophet who teaches falsehood or teaches lies. God cut them off when he judged Israel. And then let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 14. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 14. And would someone like to read verses 13 through 15 here? Okay, so this was during the time of the southern kingdom. Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar was threatening them. And the false prophets were saying, oh, everything will be okay. We'll have peace and safety. You know, God was saying through Jeremiah, no, <laughs> um, Nebuchadnezzar is coming to destroy you. Don't resist him. Um, open the city gates, invite him in, let him take you into captivity. Uh, you know, if you cooperate with him, he'll treat you okay. And the false prophets were saying, no, no, this isn't going to happen. And God hears through Jeremiah says, uh, these false prophets are going to meet their doom by sword and famine. And they certainly did. So God did take care of the false prophets. They did die, but they died at, at God's hands in these cases. <clears throat> okay, so back in, in uh, chapter 6 in Nehemiah, we've gotten at this point uh, pretty much to the end of construction. You know, we don't have any more attacks against Nehemiah. 
All they had left was to hang the doors. And in, we'll see in verse 15 that, that they did do that. So looking at verse 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elu in 52 days. Um, the month Elu was the sixth month, and this corresponds to August and September. And so the 25th would have probably put this into late September, maybe October. Some of the um, commentaries say this happened in October that they finished this construction. Um, says it only took 52 days to rebuild the wall. Uh, and this would have required a significant workforce. They would have been well-led, um, well-coordinated. And this is another indication. Nehemiah was an excellent leader. He was a tremendous project engineer. <laughs> and I've done some of that. It takes a lot of coordination to get multiple groups of people working in a coordinated fashion and maintaining quality the whole time. Remember the his enemies said, you know, a fox jumps on this wall, it's going to fall down. Well, it didn't. They managed to maintain quality, at least sufficient quality uh, for that. Now, if they did not work on the Sabbath and work six-day weeks, um, this amounts to almost nine weeks. A little over two, two months. Um, and so, again, looking at the overall um, schedule, when Nehemiah went into King Artaxerxes to ask for permission to go rebuild a wall, do you remember what month of the year it was? Of, of their year. You don't have to know the name of it. Was it what number month? It was. It was the first month of the year, Nisan. So it was the first month of the year. And so now we've got Elu, which is the sixth month. <clears throat> so Nehemiah had to. Basically, when he got his permission, he had to get his act together. He had to get from Susa all the way to Jerusalem. Back when Ezra traveled with a large group of people, it took him four months. Uh, Nehemiah traveled with, a, I think it was uh, armed men on horseback, so probably a lot less than four months, maybe a couple months of travel time, a month or so. And then he almost immediately went out and invested, you know, investigated the wall in the middle of the night, and then they started construction. So there was an awful lot that was packed into these six months um, in order to do this. So he had to be pretty efficient with his time. Um, and one of the things I did read in the commentaries is they have found some remains of this wall uh, with archaeological excavations. And they say it's the part they found is between eight and nine feet wide. Um, and it also uh, says it's pretty rough construction. <laughs> so, so it looks like it was built in a hurry. But, you know, it wasn't one of these big, nice walls you see in the pictures with all the smooth facing and, you know, 40 feet high and, you know, 
what what they say about the walls of Babylon. You could ride three chariots side by side across. It wasn't a wall like that. But it was sufficient. And they built it in 52 days. Um, So they did get the wall built and completed. Okay, so (coughs) verse 16 then talks about... um, the reactions of their enemies when they hear about the completion of the wall. But we, just a little bit longer, uh, there's more I have to say about that than I have time for, so we need to end here. So we'll wrap this up for now. Um, Brian, would you like to close some prayer for us, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this teaching and for your word that tells us that you know, you get stuff done in your time and with um, faith in you and, you know, watching your guidelines, things will be done your way. Thank you for the teachings that, you know, our teachers that dig into the, the book and really study for us and teach us and be with Pastor Robert this next hour. Let our minds and hearts be open to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.